First thing I want to say, like, yes, it's crazy times that we're living in, but I suppose we're all slowly getting used to this now. We kind of got into the routine. It doesn't take very long for us humans to get used to something. Um, but it's completely ideal, and I definitely long for the day of restoration when we can actually see each other again um, and be able to join our church families once more. I... I still feel that we're so blessed though in a time like this that we can see each other like this, be able to talk back and forth um, a little bit of latency, but you know, it's still like, imagine if you were completely isolated, like you were in house arrest and you couldn't even, you couldn't see anyone. You couldn't talk to anyone, but I think it's a such a blessing that we can be physically distant like this, but we can even be relationally close. If we decide to do more of a one-on-one -on -one zoom, um, you can talk, you can have one-on-ones, you can still do discipleship type meetings. And I think that is so cool. <laughs> but what if, what if we had sin between you and I? Not you as the whole, everyone here in chapel, but you specifically as you're listening on your computer. If I had sinned against you and I Zoom called you, like how would that feel? Where it's like, okay, we're physically distant and now we're relationally close. No, there's, there's something, there's something wrong here where even if this, this whole pandemic blows over and we're able to like physically be present with one another once more, we're still, there's still, a, there's still a separation. I can be in class with you. I could be your roommate. I could do all these other kind of things, but there's still this issue here. And I'm going to push this zoom analogy even further. And it's like, imagine with me if your spouse, was having an adulterous affair. And your spouse then Zoom called you, tried to call you from the partner's house, and they just said they're lonely. <laughs> Imagine the gut-wrenching, like, no, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want your face in my room right now. I don't want it wherever I'm at, in the kitchen, wherever you're watching this. Like, I don't want that. That is appalling. That's, a, a, that's horrendous. No. But then, they, but then they get indignant. They're like, well, you don't understand what I went through. I got a computer. I plugged it into the internet. I downloaded Zoom, and I'm now pinging your email. Why won't you answer me? And they're unrepentant of their sin. They're still living with that partner. What would that, what would that do? How, how, what would you feel in the midst of that? And how much more so is it with a holy God? Our passage this morning is in Isaiah chapter 59, and it has both an immediate context, but also it has implications for us today. And Paul actually used this exact chapter in his preaching and presentation of the gospel itself. But I want to look at the immediate context first this morning, because there is really an immense beauty here. I mean, just looking at the overall arching theme of Isaiah. For those who have studied Isaiah, I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher this, but there's definitely this running theme throughout the book of Isaiah that is really beautiful. There's like really five, five complete sections in Isaiah. It really starts off with the immediate threat. In the first five chapters, there's this immediate threat of the Assyrians um, and Israel needs delivered. God calls Isaiah in the, sec in the second section, calling him and gives him a pattern for Israel to follow, like repent, believe, these aspects of like, don't don't continue in the sin. I'm going to call you, but you're not going to hear. The third section is really large. It's like this chapter 7 through 39, and it comes out, and it says that Yahweh 
is the one who delivers. And it's something that's a theme that's reiterated throughout that throughout all those chapters is that Egypt's not going to save you. All these things that you're turning to in this life aren't going to save you. I'm the only one who can save you. In fact, I'm going to wipe out all the other things that you're running to just to prove that point that they can't save you. There's a deeper issue here that needs to be addressed. And throughout that section, there's some more prophetic oracles and historical analogies trying to talk about the heart of God for his people. But closer to the context of what we're talking about this morning is in this fourth section and fifth section. The fourth section is chapter 40 through 55. It's this, there's this tone shift. That even the casual reader, every single one of us who have read the book of Isaiah, know, we just know it. When there's this verbiage change, there's a tone shift once you get to chapter 40. Isaiah is looking future now. It's, he's talking about in very figurative language. He doesn't even refer to himself at all anymore. It's not anything that he has said. But, he should, but the aspect is really broken up into two primary, two primary parts here. It breaks up in saying that Yahweh not only desires to deliver his people, but he's able to deliver his people. So he just talked about in, in the previous sections of, of the book how he wants people to come to him. He's the only one who can save them. Not only that, he wants to save them. Not only that, he's able to save them, but there's an issue here. And the fifth section this morning is actually the section we're going to be studying in this morning is chapter 56 through 66. It's just kind of the ramifications of what God did. It's, it's like, skip that step. <laughs> Um, it's like, I want to save you, and here, I'm going to save you, and this is what it's going to look like afterwards. And Yahweh brings hope. He brings ethical transformation and a new world. Chapters 57 and 58 are what really lead up into, not just because of chronological order, but in the thematic order of 15, chapter 59, where Yahweh calls out Israel for both their idolatry and social injustice. He also is revealing his heart. It's not just an indictment against these people, but he is saying, I want to restore you. I want this. I will do this. I'm going to bring peace. I will lead you. I will guide you. And he's like, I'm not ignoring this. I know what you've done. But I want to restore comfort to you. And that's specifically overtly laid out in chapter 57. But the theme is throughout, especially the end of chapter 58. However, still in their sin, Israel cries out, and it's like, why have we fasted and you not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you not noticed? And Yahweh goes on to declare that the reason why he's not listening is because they're still in their sin. They're still committing social injustice. They're doing these things, but he will restore them. So the question remains as we open up in chapter 59 is, then why won't you do it? What is the actual reasoning here? And Isaiah, <laughs> he starts off saying like, surely the arm of the Lord, the hand of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. It's not that God is unable to do anything. The arm meaning like his strength, his ability, but hand is something even more like it's an extension of the arm and just has this idea of, actually like the dealing with it. Here's the ability, here's the means, and then the fingers are the nuances that go down even further. 
But he says it's not that he's unable to do. It's not that he doesn't see it. It's not that he doesn't see their pain. He doesn't see or hear them. But in verse 2, it says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood and your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads his case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments and speak lies. They give birth to, to trouble and evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die. And when one is broken, an adder is hatched. So these things, eggs, something that's like to see nourishment, something that's supposed to be a semblance of life. An egg is just a symbol of life. You know, there's this potentialness here. Something that's supposed to provide and nourish you is actually what's killing them. It's like this, their works are evil. Their works are killing, and they just bring about death. But you know, this idea of sin separating us from God is not unique here. It's throughout Scripture. Uh, David said in uh, Psalm 66, 18, it says, if I cherish iniquity in my heart, Lord, you wouldn't have listened. Or Proverbs 28, 9, it says, if one turns his ear away from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. This isn't even a New Testament concept. First Peter 3, it says, husbands, if you're not listening to your wife, the Lord's not going to listen to you. <laughs> because you're his wife. He's going to show you what it's like. You know, this aspect of sin separates us from the Lord. But picking back up in verse 6, it says, they're cobwebs. Or related them to spinning a spider's web. Their works, their evil works are like building webs. And they can't cover themselves with what they make. It's not like they're, they're, not, they're not hiding anything from the Lord. The Lord sees exactly what they're doing, and they can't hide it behind it in their works. Their evil deeds and their acts of violence in their hands, their feet rush into sin, and they're swift to shed blood. Their thoughts are evil thoughts. Ruin and destruction mark their ways. In the way of peace, they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads, and no one who walks in them will know peace. What's interesting is that verse 8 here is really a summary, but Paul Paul picks this up. He picks up this summary here, and he actually applies it in his uh, exposition in the book of Romans in chapter 3. And he actually just says, this is not just true of Israel. This isn't just true of what the Israelites were doing at that time. We all have gone astray. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. And we don't know peace. No one knows peace. And so Paul had this, had this sense, like, implied it to all people here. It says no one's going to be declared righteous by following the law. In fact, it's the law itself. Builds it up into verse 20. It says the law itself is what brings us to mind, to bring us consciousness of sin, to make us know our sin. It doesn't save us, which is actually the same principle that Isaiah follows through here. And back in, in chapter 59 here, after God has brought this indictment against them, saying, this is who you are, this is what you're doing, what is their response? You see a, a change in speaker here in verse 9. And they confess. So the first part of this story is the conviction of the Lord. 
But now moving into the second part here, we have confession. Because it's his kindness that brings us to brings us to repentance. This aspect of Romans 2. This aspect of the Lord's not just killing them. He's telling them what they're doing. Why? And we see that throughout the book of Isaiah, but it's because he cares. He wants them to repent. He wants them to come back to him. And so he's given his law. He wants people to repent. He's given them the means to do this. And he says, and so the response is in verse 9, so justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like dead, which is already a prof like a fulfillment of prophecy. God prophesied through Moses in Deuteronomy 28, saying, if you disobey my covenant, I will strike you blind and you will walk along the walls, grope along the walls at midday, and you can't see the way you're going. It was being... Uh, Stumble as if it were twilight. And so this fulfillment here is like, this isn't new news. God didn't just punish you guys haphazardly and now is like, oh, by the way, this is what I did. But he warned them about it. He said, this is what's going to happen. But if you look at the, even the, ver the verbiage in Deuteronomy 28, it's a prophecy that they will do it, not if you do it. He says, when you do this, this is what's going to happen. But it fulfills and it's like, no, but I will bring you back. It's like there's this aspect of redemption here but still they go on in verse 11 here it says we growl like bears we moan mournfully like the doves we look for justice but find none for deliverance but it's far away and so this one was just like the crying the grieving of their sin but now it's really just the confession it says in verse 12 for our offenses are many in your sight and our sins testify against us our offenses are ever with us and we acknowledge our iniquities Rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on God, fomenting oppression and revolt, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. This aspect of even just as they're acknowledging that even if we were to repent, it wouldn't fix anything we would turn from our ways but what we've stumbled we can't do anything we're stuck in fact if we just turn from evil we're just going to be a prey i mean the other evildoers the wicked people out here will pounce on us they'll devour us and you know what in fact our enemies right now because these people are in captivity they're in babylon or this is prophesying about them being in babylon and it's like if we're to repent, like the Babylonians are just going to kill us. Like they're, we're going to just become prey. And we see this aspect of confession is, it's not even just a, they're not making a treatise of what they're going to do now. They're like, oh, well, God, if you, if you do this, I promise I won't do it again. Um, they're not doing all these bargaining with God. They're just, I mean, in the New Testament, it's very overt. Uh, homo legeo. It's like they're just they're just saying what God has already said. They're just agreeing with what He has said. That's what confession really is. And so they're just agreeing with Him. They're like, "You're right. We've sinned. We've messed up. We can't save ourselves." And this is 
This is the theme that runs throughout scripture. Psalm 32, 5, it's like, I've acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and then you forgave me. You forgave my, the iniquity of my sin. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. This is a heart, this is a heart issue. This is the heart of God for his people, that he wants people to turn from their ways. And it's not a God has to do it type thing. If we, we often, even the Jews felt that way at times. They're like, hey, I've, I've done my penance. I've done my fasting. I've done all these other things in Isaiah 58. And they're like, why haven't you just fixed us? Why haven't you done it? We earned this. And God's like, no, you don't, you don't get it. <laughs> you don't get it. It's not what you've done. It's purely the mercy of God. And so... This aspect of confession really does, though, it leads us right to the third part, the third point this morning, is redemption. Our hope is not the result of our effort. Our hope is solely the result of Yahweh's mercy. Because in, in chapter 15, or chapter 59, verse 15 here, part B, the Lord looked, he saw this, he looked at this and was displeased. If there's anything we can see in just that one phrase here is that God cares. Again, if we believe that we've earned forgiveness just because like we've confessed our sins, we've denied the very heart of God in this passage. In just scripture in general, confession doesn't earn forgiveness. Forgiveness is purely by the mercy and love of God. He cares. He looked and was displeased that there was no justice. Psalm 51, it says, like, he will not despise a broken and contrite heart. And Proverbs 3.34 is that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is just his heart. And much like the prodigal son returning home in the parable that Jesus spoke, him returning home didn't earn the forgiveness of the father, but the father's heart was for the son. And he was welcomed back in. And so the Lord, picking up again here in verse 16, says, he saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intercede. So his own arm worked salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. Which is amazing. I mean, this aspect of the arm of the Lord has been developed throughout the book of Isaiah. I mean, it talks about how the arm of the Lord in uh, 52.10 is what is going to save them. He's like, the arm of the Lord will, will uphold, the, uphold you. And then Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3, it even applies that verbiage to the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant. He says, no, this, the suffering servant is the arm of the Lord. And people were appalled by that. They looked at this person who was not impressive. They looked at this person who was not a warring king that came in. He was suffering. He was stricken with grief. And they're like, this is the arm of the Lord? And then we have the whole passage of Isaiah 53 that goes to show that it's like, no, it wasn't his iniquities that they saw, they saw their own. It was their own that they saw in him. And so this aspect of like, no, the arm of the Lord is still working. And so now go picking up again in Isaiah 59, it's like he brings up the arm of the Lord again. It's like, no, the arm of the Lord is going to be the one who works salvation. And his own righteousness sustains him. 
He put on righteousness as his breastplate in verse 17 and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. I mean, this verse, the very idea of God's coming to the defense of his people is, is fully engaged. You know, like this warrior preparing for battle. But we also, like, if anyone, like, if, as you've read this before, you can't help but notice the prototype that this seems to be for Ephesians 6. Or Paul calls on the Christian hearers to prepare for spiritual battle. But there's just more aspects here. And I, I, I really like what John Oswald had, said, had to say about this. He said that God is fully clothed as a warrior with helmet, coat of mail, tunic, and a cloak. And it's interesting that no offensive weapons are mentioned here. Not a bow, spear, or sword. Why should these be omitted? Is not apparent. Perhaps it is just as it is that all he needed to wreak God, that all God needed to wreak vengeance on his enemies and work salvation for his people was his mighty arm. And we see that. We see that. We see how God, how Christ fulfilled and defeated the power of sin on the cross without a sword, without a war. He came and he died, and his righteousness is what upheld him. It was the perfect sacrifice. And so, but it doesn't end there. So this is parts that we, we can see right here, but also in verse 18, we see a immediate fulfillment and then to be fulfilled prophecy here. It says, according to what they've done, so he will repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. And from the west, men will fear the name of the Lord. And from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Spirit of the Lord drives along. There is, there is so much wrapped up in this, this aspect of him repaying vengeance to the enemies. The Babel, first off, the Babylonians, he's going to wipe them out. That's, there's this immediate thing. It's like, you guys are going to be okay. I will fulfill this. And they were. <laughs> they eventually the Persians took over them. They got sent out. But then even the Persians were taken. Like there's just a lot, a lot of things that happened that were all prophesied about in like Daniel, for instance. But we also see just this aspect of from the rising of the sun in verse 19, they will revere his glory. The, from the west, everyone's going to revere his glory. And even just the, the verbiage of like the coastlands or the islands is throughout the Old Testament is used to describe the, like the world, is to describe all, like all, all the other nations. And everyone will glorify him, or at least revere his glory. Which also just kind of gives this hint that he's not just coming back for us. He's not, he's not coming just for, for those who he has forgiven. But he's also coming for those that he will force to bend the knee. He's also coming for everyone. But verse 20 really summarizes the point of this whole, <laughs> this whole passage here. It says, The Redeemer 
will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. This verse really shows that there is a fundamental condition to experiencing the compassion of the Lord, a turning away from the continued rebellion. God's grace is inherent in his character. Nothing human can prompt it or create it. It's who he is. But one thing can block its flow. Unrepentant sin. Sin separates us from God. But verse 21, it seems like it's almost this, it's hard, hard to understand. It's like, it seems like he's taking this break or what, how does this tie in to the rest of the passage? But I do believe that it really is the finishing work. It's not even just the bow on top. It's the name on top. It's like the card you read first. This is the, this is the point and for who and why. It says in verse 21, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of their descendants from this time on and forever. There's this eschatological hope. I said that wrong. That's okay. There's this hope of the end of joy and the fact that we don't have to worry of even just our children not walking in the Lord and their children walking in the Lord. There's an aspect of there's going to be peace. It's going to be ultimate restoration. And verse 60 and on, chapter 60 and on goes on to talk about the end. It's like this, what does it mean? What does it look like? This ultimate hope in the Lord. But this verse, verse 21, it's really just the intended outcome. What does it mean for the Lord to overcome the power of sin? And really, chapter 56 through 59 is really all about this. God defeating sin. Not just bringing his people back. That's too small. That's too, that's too little. Isaiah 49 even says it's just too small of a thing for me to just save Israel. And so like Isaiah 49.5, it's like it's too small of a thing for me just to save Israel. I'm going to save the world. I'm going to be a light. I'm going to send you to be a light for the world. But it's just like 56 to 59, it's like what does it mean for them to be saved from their sin? And it really is. It, this whole section is like this nation that's depending on its birthright as an elect people while also nurturing its idols and its rituals will never realize that God's purpose for it in the world was to represent him. Yet the people seem helpless before the power of sin. So the arm of the Lord defeated the guilt of sin and will defeat the power of sin as well. In order that the early promises Earlier promises of God's spirit may be realized in the people for the sake of the world. Which is fun because we think about this. Paul quoted verse 8 here describing the nature of all humanity for his argument. So this actually ties in beautifully to Romans 3. Says there's no fear of God before their eyes. You know, this, this aspect of like they don't know peace. Now we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silent, the whole world held accountable before God. Therefore, 
No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, it's through the law that we become conscious of sin. And it's just like we saw that. We see this in how even Israel saw their sin and they just confessed. They're like, God, we can't do it. Even if we were to repent, we'd just die. There's nothing, there's no hope for us. But now, in verse 21, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. Not just Israel. This is so much greater than just Israel. Israel is just a type of the ultimate fulfillment of just God shows a people to represent him to the world so that the world might know him. We have been chosen. We're elect to represent God to the world. We are a kingdom of priests. We represent God to, the, God to the world and the world to God. We intercede. That was the role of Israel. And now we're brought in on that promise. We're brought in on that. And so my question to each of you listening here this morning, is this your good news? Yes. We've all heard it before. We've all studied it. And how often do we say, like, you know, you got to think on the gospel every single day. And I know I don't. I know I don't. I find myself going some days at times, sometimes a week goes by before I even think about the gospel. And I'm like, wow, man, I've been really depressed this week. I've been thinking about some garbage things that have been going on in this world. Is this your hope? If you were to ask your unbelieving friends, coworkers, family members, what would they say your hope is? Where would they say your security is? In this time of COVID prison, that <laughs> we're stuck in our rooms and locked in, a, locked in our house, <laughs> the world's watching. The world is watching. I mean, the, the, the statistic that I was reading about was just the fact that we have 39, over 39 million evangelical churches that have shut down, and has the world even noticed? Have they noticed our absence? I hope not. I hope that they've totally, I hope that, they, that they've noticed. I hope that they haven't just noticed the fact that a building shut down, but that the church is moving. I hope that they notice that they... <laughs> that we're still moving and we still have hope. We still have love and joy. And people are looking at that intentionally. And they said, look at this person who claims to have eternal hope that transcends all my problems. And so is this gospel only good news for when you're not in quarantine? Or is it gospel specifically for times like this? So in closing, this thing I wanted to say was remember your hope doesn't come from your effort. It comes through the mercy and grace of Yahweh that loves you. He loves you too much to leave you in your sin. Is this something that we're acknowledging? In this time of social isolation, are we isolating ourselves from the Lord? Is this something, are we pressing into the Lord? Or are we allowing ourselves to be drawn from him? Are we putting up sin in our lives in the secret and confines of our own home where there's no accountability around us? Are we building barriers between us and God? Or 
Are we using this time to represent the Lord to the people because we have eternal hope? So let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is living and active and that you talked about hope, you spoke about hope, you delivered hope, and then you brought it to us. And God, and even in our stumblings and even when we struggle, God, that you are still present and available to each and every one of us, even now. God, even when we don't have the physical community around us, I thank you, God, that you have destroyed the dividing wall of hostility between you and us. God, how we have erected a wall of sin, God, but you broke that down through the mighty arm of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I give you praise and glory that you are good, that you love each and every one of us individually and intimately, God. You know where we're at. You know our fears. You know our struggles, God, and you care. You met your people, Israel, in a time of depression, in a time of anxiety, in a time of uncertainty of what was going on, and you called them out, and you delivered them purely by your mercy and grace, because you love them. And how much do you love us as well, as you're also chosen people? Father, I give you praise and glory this morning that in the midst of being locked down, that we can still seek you out. I pray that you speak to each and every one of us today and for the weeks to come, God. Even when we're let out of house arrest, God, I pray that we wouldn't lose sight of you, God, in the midst of enjoying our freedoms. But God, that we would take this as a lesson to press into you even more. That this is purely just a disillusionment to our, our need of you. God, how we think we're so self-sufficient. Lord, I love you. I thank you for this morning. We pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen.